a shift uh, in the message uh, where first Christ was calling them to go out, and you may remember that we heard uh, a call to pray and a call to go several weeks ago for God's ministers, and, and really in, in many ways for all of us, a call to pray and a call to go where the Lord will send us. But then the Lord shifts, and I couldn't help but think today as we were uh, sitting in our adult Sunday school class that we were studying Romans chapter 8, uh, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is true. Uh, and the second half of this passage today is the opposite side of that. It's a very somber warning about the sin of unbelief, the reality that there is a very real condemnation for those who remain outside of Christ. So that's what we'll be picking up today. Uh, our reading are, really is going to begin, our, our study is going to begin on verse 10 and go through verse 16, but in order to get the whole context, uh, we are going to begin our reading at verse 1. Luke chapter 10, reading verses 1 through 16, but focusing today really on verses 10 through 16. And before we read that together, I ask that you would join me as we go to the Lord together in prayer. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, we thank you for this, your word, which is true and good and right. And we pray that as we come to it, you would expose our hearts and the sin of unbelief that remains within us. We thank you that all of the sin of your people has been laid on Christ and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you for salvation free and true and clear for us. O oh Lord, we pray that you would help us today whether to consider for the first time the judgment that awaits those who are outside of Christ or to rejoice again in what it is you have done to save us to yourself, we pray. Give us hearts and minds to understand your gospel through this somber word today. Help us with a seriousness to come and hear what you have to teach us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag. No knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Wherever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? 
and you shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we read it and as we study it together today. It is uh, customary on the first Sunday of January in many churches to take one more week, uh, one more week before getting back to the regular preaching, uh, to consider this new year that lays before us, to think perhaps what the Lord might do in 2020, and to think uh, how we might follow Him. And there's a lot of value in that. It really is. Godly uh, wisdom includes planning. And, and the scriptures tell us that in Christ we are able to look to the future with hope, uh, and God's word tells us to consider how we can redeem the time the Lord has given us. So it's a good thing, periodically, uh, to think about perhaps goals and, and even spiritual resolutions that we might have. And if you haven't set any spiritual goals for 2020, maybe today, maybe this afternoon is a great time to do that. It's not too late uh, to pick a Bible reading plan for this year, not too late to to establish a regular habit of prayer. It's always a good thing to think about uh, what the Lord might do for us in the future and, and how we might grow in His grace in the coming months. But today, as we study together Luke chapter 10, I hope that you're going to think further than where you will be next December. Maybe, of course, that, that this is the year that the Lord returns. 2020 may be the year that any number of us are uh, called to Him and called to die, and, and that this is our appointed year. It may be that all of us are spared, and that the Lord tarries, and that we'll all be here again this time next year, next January, considering our, our spiritual resolutions and our goals for 2021, and then on to 2022, and, and how new, who knows how long. But our text today, I think, is calling us to look beyond what it means to flip our calendars from year to year. Our text is calling us really to consider uh, that time when, uh, when years and decades will become meaningless. That time when time itself will give way uh, into endlessness, when the eternal home of each person will be fixed by God's unchangeable decree. God's Word is confronting us with that future day that the Lord has fixed to judge the world in righteousness by a man He has appointed, Christ Jesus. God's Word is calling us to consider these things. And I think at the start of a new year, there's no better time than, than now to examine ourselves in the light of that eternal day. No better time for sinners to hear uh, the call to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ. There is no better time for Christians to remember what it is the Lord has done to save us to Himself. And so with God's help today, that's how we're going to look at this passage. We're going to look under three headings. We're going to see first the truth of judgment... Secondly, in this passage, we're going to see the sin of disbelief. And thirdly, we're going to hear the grace of repentance. The truth of judgment, the sin of disbelief, and the grace of repentance. And we begin in that, that very unpopular place by considering the truth of judgment. Well, you notice as we read that this really is the overall context uh, of the verses that we read, especially beginning in verse 10. Christ is concluding these 
uh, these instructions to his 72 messengers. He's sending them out into the, the towns and the, the villages to prepare the way that he will go into these places to minister to the people. He, he sends them out, he says, as sheep among the wolves, and he acknowledges that where they go and as they go, they will enter into many towns where the message they have to preach will not be received. They will not be welcomed. And the gospel is going to be spurned. And that, where that happens, they are to stand in the middle of the main street, the broadest street they can find, and they are to make sure that the town notices them wiping the dust of their city from their feet. It's judgment. We've seen this action already. We, we studied this back in chapter 9, if you were with us, where Jesus sent out the 12 apostles, and he sent them to do the same thing, to heal the sick, to, to drive out demons, to proclaim the gospel, and yet he warned them that, that they ought to cleanse themselves from the dust of disbelievers, to treat unbelievers in those places where they were not welcomed with the gospel, to treat those places as foreign soil to God's kingdom, to treat them as Gentiles, without God and without hope in the world. It's a message that couldn't be understood, couldn't be misunderstood, I'm sorry, that would have been a terrible misunderstanding. It was a message that could not be misunderstood, that those who dismiss God's kingdom will bear God's wrath. And so we see here that gentle Jesus, meek and mild, as many often think of him, he sends out his messengers to teach the truth of God's judgment. This, of course, is not a new teaching. In Israel, it's not a new teaching in Scripture. Over and over again, in the Old Testament as well in the, as the New, we see that God's judgment is woven into the very fabric of Scripture. You cannot honestly read the Bible and come away thinking that God will simply wink at sin, that He doesn't care about it, that He will let the guilty go unpunished, that God is simply a God of unconditional love, that everyone is uh, is receiving of His love and and. Uh, and passes by the judgment unharmed. No, it's everywhere in the Scriptures. The very first psalm reminds us that the wicked will not stand in the judgment. The prophets warned of that great day of the Lord that was near upon all the nations, said Obadiah. John's revelation promises a day to come when the wrath of the Lamb will be revealed on the earth, and we can multiply passages just like that over and over again. We could see the full teaching of the doctrine of the judgment of God that is coming upon the unbeliever. But if you want to know the outline of what that day will be like, we find it right here in this passage. We find it in the details that Jesus gives to his disciples as he teaches them and as he sends them to teach the judgment of God. We find, first of all, that, that God's judgment is something that is outside of us. That's perhaps what makes God's judgment such an unpopular teaching. It's the fact that men and women love to deny that God is able to render a verdict on human sin. That's because if we admit that God is our judge, we have to admit that we are accountable to somebody other than ourselves, and it violates our culture's cardinal virtue of self-determination. It violates our, our illusions of autonomy and independence. To acknowledge that God is judge means that we must also submit our hopes and our desires, our affections, our goals for ourselves, our most firmly held societal norms. All of it has to be submitted to His scrutiny and to His standard that sits outside of us. And this is what Jesus is telling them. 
They were to go in and to say, even where God's message is not received, nevertheless, they were to say, nevertheless, the kingdom of God has come near. There is a king, and there is a ruler, and there is a judge, and he has a standard, and you are not him. That's the message, that God's judgment is outside of us. Whether we accept it or not, God's judgment teaches us that we will be evaluated by a standard that lies outside of our own desires for ourselves. At the end of the days, we we will not be evaluated by whether or not we think we were successful or how well we we remained true to ourselves or followed our heart or, or whatever other thing we might like to say. Do we, do we think we did well or, or not? There is a standard that is outside of us. Our lives will be assessed by whether we were willing to accept God's verdict on our sin and whether we were willing to turn to Him in faith and repentance. So these verses teach us that God's judgment is outside of us. They also teach us that God's judgment is still future. This is important because throughout the pages of Scripture and perhaps throughout our daily lives, we see small judgments. We see uh, what we might call micro-judgments showing up in the normal course of human history. The unbelieving Israelites were punished with 40 years of wilderness wandering because they did not believe that the Lord could do what He said He would do. And that was a judgment, and it happened in space and in time. While men and women were living under it, God sent Jehu that man of action to bring judgment to the idolatry of Ahab and Jezebel. And it was a judgment that men and women could see and they could point to. The kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon are torn down because of their pride. Even death and sickness entered creation as the judgment of God upon the sin of men. And yet all of these are micro-judgments. They are glimpses of a much greater judgment, a macro judgment that is yet to come, something that is still future. Look again at verse 12. Jesus says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Notice Jesus does not say that on that day when the judgment comes, it will have been more bearable for those who were judged in Sodom. There's something that is still future. Sodom, of course, had had been destroyed for centuries when Jesus said these words. 1,900 years ago, their town had been buried in burning sulfur and fire, and yet Jesus says there's still a judgment to come. There's a judgment day that is still future. There is something that is greater than all of the pains and the punishments of this life. So when Jesus thinks about the judgment of God, he's not thinking about the the natural consequences of all of our bad decisions. Well, you, you could have done a little bit better, but you know, you sow and you reap and and you get what's coming to you, but no big deal. One day we'll all die and it'll all be over. I don't know, there is a day coming still. There is a future day when the living and the long dead will stand before God's throne of justice. And the punishments of this life will be the beginning for those who bear the wrath of God for sin. God's judgment is outside of us. God's judgment is still future, and God's judgment is universal. You know, the Jews at this time would have considered Jesus' words to be the highest insult imaginable. Here he speaks of fine, upstanding towns in in Judea and Galilee. Jewish towns where they had the law and the prophets. Jewish towns where they had 
the signs of circumcision and all of, all of the, the rituals and all of the temple sacrifices and they had all that the Lord had given them and yet Jesus is comparing them to pagan sinners. He speaks of judgment and he lumps them both in the same category as if God made no distinction when he came to judge the world. And in a sense, there is no distinction. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. The God of the Scriptures is not some local isolated deity. He is not a God whose judgment you can escape by simply taking up another religion or no religion at all. You can't get on a ship and sail to Tarshish and avoid what he has decreed. The Lord of creation is king over all the earth. And when the throne of Christ is set for judgment, all men and all women will appear before him. In the judgment of God, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah will stand beside the people of Judea and Galilee. And they will stand beside the people of Concord and Lexington, beside the people of Tokyo and Amsterdam and Papua New Guinea. The Lord has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. God's judgment is outside of us. It is future and it is universal. This is the truth of God's judgment. And the truth is that God's judgment falls upon those who have rejected Jesus, the Lord and the Messiah that He has sent. This brings us to our second main point. It's a consideration of the sin of, of disbelief. And the most prominent feature of these verses that we've just read together today is, is that Jesus here is speaking of a comparative judgment. Whatever it means for, for some judgment to be more bearable, some judgment to be less bearable, for, for judgment to be somehow different, whatever it means, and, and you can think maybe in metaphorical terms, the scripture often speaks of, of hell as a burning fire and as a worm that does not die, maybe more worms, maybe hotter flames, I don't know, maybe darker darkness, whatever it is, Jesus seems though to be speaking of judgment in degrees. Some is more unbearable than others. He says in verse 14, it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for Chorazin and Bethsaida. Jesus is speaking of different degrees of judgment, and that is because he is dealing with different degrees of sin. Now let's be very careful here. All sin makes us guilty before God, even the smallest sin. All sin deserves God's wrath and curse, all sin, no matter how small, is equally damning. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that the man who says to his brother, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. All sin makes us guilty in God's sight, and yet there are some sins that we might call more heinous than other sins, more despicably wicked than other sins. Jesus spoke to Pilate in John chapter 19, verse 11. Pilate made a sort of veiled threat because Jesus wouldn't respond to him. He made no answer to the accusations. And Pilate said, don't you know that I have the power to release you or to condemn you? And Jesus said, you would have no power 
over me if it had not been given to you from above. But, and then he was speaking of Judas, he said, He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. That is, Judas' sin of betraying Jesus was more hideously wicked, more heinous in the sight of God than Pilate's sin of allowing the Jews to condemn Jesus to death. Both men were guilty. But Judas, Jesus said, has the greater sin. Now in the Pentateuch, in the book of Numbers, uh, this is spoken of as a sin with a high hand. There are some sins that men commit ignorantly. There are some sins that men commit knowingly. Numbers chapter 15 verse 30 says, uh, there are some sins that are done with a high hand. It is sin that is compounded by a wicked intent. Sin multiplied by more sinfulness. There are some sins that are more hatefully wicked than others. And we know this, I think, by instinct. But J.G. Voss, one uh, older commentator, he says the sin of murder is more heinous than the sin of theft. They're both equally sinful. They both make us guilty before the Lord, but the sin of murder is more heinous than the sin of theft. The sin of theft is more heinous than the sin of laziness. No matter what PETA says, it is a greater atrocity to to, uh, torture a human being made in God's image than it is to torture an animal. So when Jesus warns of a judgment that is less bearable than the judgment coming to Sodom and Sidon, it's because he's dealing with a sin that is degrees beyond their abominations. Now, what is the sin that Jesus is dealing with? We can think of all those big sins that we like to preach against. The things that we like to compare ourselves to and we say, well, I'm I'm not doing that. I'm not one of those terrible people. What's the sin that Jesus is dealing with that he says is greater than, than many of these other sins that we can think of and compare ourselves to? The sin is the sin of disbelief. A greater abomination than the abominations committed in Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon. Now notice that he's not just dealing with unbelief here, but he's dealing with disbelief. Disbelief is is a little bit different. Disbelief is the sin of having the gospel clearly preached to you and rejecting it. It is the sin of being exposed to God's promises that can save you from hell and turning up your nose. The sin of disbelief is the sin of convincing yourself that you have no need whatsoever of whatever mercy God can give. That there either is no judgment that is coming, or if there is a judgment, it certainly isn't coming to a person like you. Because God only cares about those those big sins, and you haven't committed any of those. You haven't cheated on your spouse. You haven't murdered anyone. You haven't haven't stolen from your neighbor. And so there is no judgment to worry about. But Jesus is saying one of the greatest abominations is the sin of refusing to believe that there is a judgment to be faced. One of the greatest abominations is refusing to believe that there is a Savior who promises forgiveness to those who to repent and believe the gospel. I wonder if we really understand the implications of this. I wonder if we understand that this means that the sin of disbelief is more heinous than the sin of immorality. That's the sin that the church likes to rail against, isn't it? For thousands and thousands of years, that is right there at the top of the list, the things that we like to compare ourselves against. And we don't have to go through the whole sordid tale. We know what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. This was their sin. 
Twin cities full of the most outrageous perversion and violence imaginable. The Lord sent his angels and and Genesis 19 says that the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, every one of them surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. It's hard to imagine a more devilish place than Sodom. Las Vegas pales in comparison. It was a whole town full of men who were content with violence just to fulfill their unnatural lusts. It was a town where Abraham pleaded, if there are only ten righteous men, will you spare the city? And ten righteous men could not be found. Full of wickedness, full of perversion, and throughout the scriptures, Sodom becomes the picture of immorality and the wrath of God. And this is the sin the church loves to condemn. You ask many evangelicals today, what is wrong with the world? And they'll say that it's, it's the fact that our moral fabric is being torn apart. Maybe they'll point to the sexual revolution of the 1960s and that long downward spiral as our culture seems to be circling the moral drain and sinking ever and ever faster. And it's true. A terrible sin. A terrible, horrible abomination being committed all around us. Our culture not only approving, but celebrating all sorts of abominations and perversions. Celebrating and forcing others to celebrate homosexual lust. It's a terrible sin, and we ought to pray for our culture. We ought to pray especially for the lives of the young people who are being exposed to these lies and being told them day in and day out. Yet, did you know that Jesus says there is a greater sin than the sin of immorality? It is the sin of disbelief. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town where the gospel is rejected. The sin of disbelief is more heinous than the sin of immorality. It's more heinous than the sin of injustice. Here's the sin that our culture loves to condemn. And read throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, you find that these are the sins of of these other twin cities, Tyre and Sidon. They were cities up northern, uh, north of Israel, and they bordered on the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, Tyre was, was built kind of uh, like some of those places uh, in the Middle East today where they build a land bridge out into the middle of the waters, and, and that's what Tyre was. It was out in the middle of the sea. It was this, this shipping port, and they had their own sort of debauchery, and they, they heaped up, uh, Zechariah tells us, heaped up riches for themselves, but their main sin that they were known for was the sin of injustice against the people of God. Ezekiel chapter 26. The prophet says, Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gate of the peoples is broken. It has swung open to me. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. In other words, while the nations raged against Israel, Tyre took advantage of them. Tyre and Sidon in their greed swoop down on injured Israel to pick at the scraps and to fill their pocketbooks to overflowing. Tyre and Sidon, we find in Scripture, would break any loyalty. They would double-cross any agreement, any covenant to get more and more and more. And this is the sin that our culture loves to condemn. It's the sin of the rich getting richer on the backs of the poor. It's the sin of, of resources gobbled up by greedy corporations and its injustice and its inequality. And yes, this was a sin. Tyre and Sidon, as you read through the Old Testament, were the other proverbial cities where destruction was coming 
because of injustice. But there is something more heinous than the sins of injustice. Jesus says it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for Chorazin and Bethsaida. Can you believe that? More bearable for the pagan towns built on abuse and oppression than than humble Bethsaida. We're just outside its city walls. A group of 5,000 people were fed in the wilderness miraculously by Christ. More bearable for Tyre than them. More bearable for Sidon, that oppressive city, than, than for Bethsaida, where a man who was born blind received his sight. More bearable for these pagan cities than towns where mighty works produced no repentance. This is what Jesus is telling us, that the sin of disbelief is more heinous than the sins of injustice, more heinous than the sins of immorality, and it is most heinous in places where the gospel has been preached most clearly. Which city is the one that receives the greatest condemnation? It's Capernaum. It's a town that is, as we've been studying Luke for the last six chapters, that's the town where Jesus mostly has either been ministering in or from. It served, at least for the first part of of Jesus' ministry, as something like his home base. Matthew chapter 9 calls Capernaum Jesus' own town. Not that he was from there, he was from Nazareth, he was born in Bethlehem. He had uh, no exposure or no connection to Capernaum other than that he ministered there an awful lot. And you can read the Gospels and you can find all of the wonderful things that happened in Capernaum. It was a town that Peter lived. It was a town where Levi was called. It was a town where Jairus ruled the synagogue. It was a town where a woman was healed from 12 years of bleeding. It was a town where Jesus preached to crowds from boats because they were so large that he couldn't stand on the land with them. It was a town where a paralytic was lowered through a roof and he went away healed and forgiven of his sin. It was a town where wonderful things happened. And if any earthly place had been privileged by the presence of Jesus, it was Capernaum. If you wanted to tour the city, you could probably imagine the people that would stop you and grab your attention and say, this is where it happened. Over there, that's that's the lake where Jesus caused so many fish to be caught that two full boats couldn't hold them. This is the place where, where he healed. This is the place where he taught. This is the place where the centurion had faith so great that his servant was healed and Jesus never even had to visit him. Can't you imagine what it would be like to be in this place? Look at this place so blessed by Jesus' presence. But Jesus says, verse 15, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Is that what it takes to be blessed? Does it take exposure to Jesus' presence? Does it take being preached at? as the people of Capernaum were preached at? Does it take having all of the signs and the seals of the covenant? Does it take being baptized and raised in a good family with morals? Does it take being somewhat different from all of your unbelieving neighbors and friends? Does it take just being a nice, upstanding young person who who does what's expected? Is that what it takes to be blessed and to escape the judgment? Is God's blessing, is salvation something that you can, uh, you can receive sort of by osmosis, just by getting close enough that it sort of seeps into you and you don't know how it happens? Is that what it takes to be blessed? Jesus says, 
Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you shall be brought down to Hades. Why? Because they refused to believe. Because they saw and they heard and they experienced God's signs and wonders and they disbelieved. And what we find here is that God's judgment falls heaviest on those who hear the gospel and reject it. J.C. Ryle says it far better than I can. He says, it's not flagrant sin alone that ruins souls. We have only to sit and do nothing when the gospel is pressed on us, and we will find ourselves one day in the pit. We need not run into excesses of riot. We need not openly oppose true religion. We have only to remain cold, careless, indifferent, unmoved, unaffected, and our end will be in hell. No sin makes less noise, but none so surely damns the soul as disbelief. Dear friends, beware the sin of disbelief. Beware the sin of hearing the gospel preached over and over and going away unchanged. There is a judgment to come. There is a hell to be feared. And all you have to do to end up there is to simply do nothing when the gospel is preached to you. To hear it and to reject it. Beware the sin of disbelief. But if you would escape God's judgment and the hell that follows, there is a way. And we find it here in the passage. It is the way of repentance. This is our final point, the grace of repentance. We see that this is what Christ was after. This is what he was after when he sent out his 72. This is what he was after every time he, he raised a dead person or healed a leper, every time he spoke the gospel every time he sent out one more preacher to preach the gospel, every time he's done this for 2,000 years, this is what Jesus is after. He is after the grace of repentance. Notice what he says in verse 13. If the mighty works done in you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Sitting in sackcloth and ashes, they would have repented. They would have humbled themselves. They would have turned and believed. They would have accepted God's verdict of their sin. They would have cried out for mercy and believed in the Savior. This is what Jesus is after. He's after repentance. And this is exactly what's lacking in the sin of disbelief. Men and women love their autonomy more than they fear the judgment of God. They love to believe that they have no need of repentance. And in their sinful pride, they refuse to bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ before the one to whom all judgment has been committed. And today, at the start of a new year, God's Word is calling us not to be stubborn like that. Not to stiffen our necks like a mule and push our noses in our own direction. Not to, to turn in a way other than the Lord is calling us to go. God's Word is calling us not to be so full of pride that we refuse to believe that there is a Savior who can deliver us from the judgment to come probably foolish in a group this size to think that everyone here has repented of their sins truly. Many of you have. I know. I've, I've prayed with you. I've, I've been with you and I've, I've seen and I've heard your faith. I've, I've watched you pray as you fight by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Many of you 
have repented, but not everyone, I'm sure. Maybe there are some who are here because your parents bring you week after week. You can't get out of it. Maybe there are some who are here because this is the respectable thing to do and the good place to be. Maybe there are some who are here because you simply have nowhere else to go. But wherever you are, you need to know that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That's what Paul preached in Athens. In Acts chapter 17, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And the only way to be saved from the judgment is to turn to Christ in the grace of repentance. To turn to Christ who was crucified and buried for your sin. To turn to Christ who was raised and ascended for your salvation, to repent of the sins that deserve God's judgment, and to believe in the Christ who suffered in your place. John chapter 6 records one of the sermons that Jesus preached in these places where people didn't believe him. John chapter 6 uh, records the feeding of the 5,000 just outside Bethsaida, and then immediately after uh, records a sermon that Jesus preached in the Capernaum as he sat in the synagogue and preached there some Sabbath day. To people who wouldn't listen, even though the signs were there, even though the message was being preached, this is what he said. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and you do not believe. But all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Dear friends, this is the grace of repentance. It is the promise that all those who humble themselves under the judgment of God will receive His mercy. It's a promise that where the gospel produces repentance, sinners find life in Jesus Christ. If you are one of the many among us here today who have repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no better day than today to rejoice. Jesus gives a promise. He says, those who come to me, I will never cast out. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. What a day to rejoice in what God has done for us in Christ. If you have repented and if you are him, there is no judgment to be feared because it has been laid on him. But if you are among the number that have never repented of your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are still under the wrath and the curse of God. And on that day when the judgment comes, if you are still outside of Christ, if you have refused to bow the knee, and if you have simply said, I don't need to listen to that right now. There will be time aplenty for me to repent. There will be time aplenty for me to reform my life. I don't need to think about such fables as sin and judgment and redemption. I don't need to think about my soul. If on that day you remain outside of Christ, you will be outside of Him forever. When Jesus speaks of, of Capernaum being cast into Hades, it's the same word, the same language that's used in Luke chapter 16, when he begins to speak of the rich man, separated by a great chasm that no one can cross. 
or those who are in Christ are there in the presence of God and, and receiving his blessing and seeing his joy, but those who are cast out, who are in Hades, who are in hell, will be forever punished for rejecting the Savior who was, who was preached to them. If you're still outside of Christ, there is no better day than today to come to him, to repent and to believe. To repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out because the Lord has fixed the day that he will judge the world in righteousness. Please join me in prayer.